Hey everyone, Pat and Posh here. Before we get on with today's episode, we just wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our guests, subscribers, and supporters, and say thank you so much for tuning in and listening over the past couple of months. We've had a blast thus far, and as we kick off 2018, we're super excited to share more stories of some incredible founders behind the businesses, startups, and movements that make LA what it is. Also, if you're enjoying the Founder Hour so far, we would really appreciate it if you guys could take a second to subscribe and rate us in iTunes. It means more to us than you could imagine. All right, let's get the show on the road. You'd see these lawyers that were that, that would come stressed out. We're almost looking forward to this like quick interaction of their order because our team members had made them feel right so welcomed. It was like kind of a it was an escape for them to come down and order from us. What's going on, everyone? We're hanging out with Mario Del Perro. He's the co-founder and CEO of Mendocino Farms. Uh, you're tuned in in the Founder Hour, by the way. Uh, Mario, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's great to be here with you guys. Yeah, so uh, kind of to kick it off, um, you know, we usually kind of like to start off with the backstory. So why don't you tell us kind of about your um, maybe college days leading up to your first business, and then we can kind of start from there. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's definitely... Maybe a little bit of a different path in, in kind of how I found uh, the restaurant business. Um, it was definitely not my trajectory when I was at USC. Um, I was absolutely uh, going to go be a lawyer. Um, and that was a uh, great decision. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally right. Um, funny enough, a lot of people told me not to go do that. Me too. Um, I didn't listen. Yes, there it is, nurse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, um, you know, I was, I was getting my degree in international relations and a good friend of mine um, had just graduated. His dad had actually been a major restaurant bar owner um, uh, named Ron Newman. He created a concept called the Red Onion. So it was it was actually these unbelievably popular kind of uh, Mexican full-service restaurants, but then had a nightclub attached to it. It was okay. a really interesting, okay. innovative uh, type concept. Um, but it was actually the first concept to be like multi-unit that would actually do over 10 million, yeah. um, so, which was very rare. This is pre-Cheesecake um, Factory, pre-PF Chang's, mm-hmm. um, pre-Yard House. You know, so to be able to do those numbers um, and own you know, 12, 14 of them was, was pretty special. He's a pretty smart guy. Um, but uh, not, uh, he definitely come uh, through some difficult times, and actually that business had, had gone bankrupt. And his son was graduating from SC, and who's a very smart guy. And they were creating a new concept um, from all of their learnings. And uh, I guess my curiosity, um, I was taking a bunch of classes, uh, entrepreneur classes for the non-business major right. that USC would offer, um, and said, hey, could I be a fly in the wall and kind of um, be your Sherpa and carry your luggage while you mm-hmm. guys went on this tour of deciding what, what the next concept would be? And admittedly, in the time that I spent with them as they were kind of um, visiting places and talking about what the next concept could be uh, is when I really caught the bug. Because they weren't saying like, hey, this is cool or this is a good recipe. The whole conversation was around who is our core customer and what, how are they not um, being serviced? How are they not having their needs being met? How can we, how can we 
build a concept around this core customer that isn't being done. And that level of innovation and kind of solving a problem that needed to be solved is what really kind of got me excited. And then just balancing this idea of the law is very zero sum, Mm -hmm. right? I win, you lose. Um, And I saw very early on when we um, opened the concept, uh, Sharkies, spelled K-E-E-Z, not the Not the one food, that exists now, yeah. But the one, um, they actually exist, but they're all uh, Hermosa Beach, yeah, Manhattan yeah, Beach. Bar, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the bar kind of. Baja Sharkies, the, yeah, right? Baja Sharkies, yeah. that's exactly right. Um, so we ended up uh, opening, and I was blown away because here they are. They're, they're making huge amount of money by making people happy. And in fact, the bars around them we're starting to make more money. American so it wasn't this, and, well, yeah, it was in this zero sum game. All of a sudden, like kind of all ships rise with high tides. Mm-hmm. I'm like, God, I could be part of a business that not only like, do I, do I make great money? But, but the guy next to me is kind of like, dude, right on, like, mm-hmm. come on, you know, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's create some synergy together. Right. And that, um, you know, those, those two kind of ideas really resonated with me of something that, um, uh, that could be great to spend my time on. Now, of course, then I had to deal with my dad, who um, who was CEO of a large meat processing family uh, created company. It'd been around for almost eighty years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our sole clients are restaurant groups, right? So, um, so here here I have my dad, who is a vendor to restaurants, going nine out of restaurants fail. This is the worst thing you could ever do. I didn't pay for USC for you to go be in restaurants. So uh, that was... Well, uh, that was what I was about to ask. That was my like, support you, network. You, sort of grew, you grew up kind of around hospitality. You know, your dad yeah. had his own company. What, like, why did you um, go to college? You know, why didn't you kind of just go in with business with your dad? Yeah, yeah. my vision was to work anywhere but for the family company. Okay. <laughs> so so, so, so the own. idea of going to be a lawyer was, uh, was definitely part of a plan to not go run a meat company. Mm-hmm. So it was just the opposite, right? Yeah. Why, why not go the, the easy path is probably been my theme is like, let's figure out the hardest path and take it. Um, so, so needless to say, I ended up uh, um, working for the Newmans and learning an enormous amount and absolutely starting to understand why um, really that 9 out of 10 restaurants fail, but 1 out of 10, I would argue that person's always successful because they evolve, they pivot, they grow, they learn. Um, you know, 9 out of 10 restaurants fail because the restaurant industry has such a low barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are buying themselves a job. You know, um, but they in fact should never be running a business. Um, so, so that's probably about fifty percent. So, five out of ten restaurants should have never even opened. Um, and then there's you know some wiggle room on the other four out of ten. You know, a lot of people are very very smart. They get in the restaurant business, but they're smart in other fields. They're lawyers or uh, doctors or real estate uh, people saying, "Wow, the restaurant business looks really easy," and it and it is uh, a simple business on the surface. But in order to scale it, and, and this is a lot of the growth that I'm still, you know, learning. There's so much um, process, systems, and infrastructure that has to be put in place to really um, scale successfully. And that's why you see a lot of that four out of ten that still fail think that they've they've they they own it because they have one successful. But the minute they start scaling, you know, the the business implodes because they're truly not students of the business. Um, they truly haven't dug into the amount of infrastructure and systems that it takes 
to um, create an experience um, that's elevated, but in a consistent way. Right. So Mario, you now have graduated college and you're kind of just dove into this new venture that yeah. you didn't really know that you wanted to get into in the first place. In yeah. fact, you were trying to avoid it by yeah. going to USC. Yeah, yeah. You know, what were you know what were you thinking? You know, being in this thing that you don't really know what you're doing at that point in time. Yeah, you know, um, I, I I pride myself as being a really fun guy that uh, most people I think would want to have a beer with, right? Because um, I like having beers. <laughs> um, and, but at the same time, you know, uh, I definitely um, you know pride myself on being fairly nerdy. Um, and I while I didn't know a lot about the restaurant business, I, I really dug in. You know, when I uh, right from the get-go, um, you know, if I was going to give any advice is, is commit, right? Um, I fully committed. I didn't, I wasn't dabbling in the restaurant business um, as much as no support from my family. I was fully committed. And, um, you know, Google re- really wasn't active in 1995. Um, but I, I did go, weirdly enough, there's such things as bookstores. And mm-hmm. I went to them and, and got every book uh, that had to do with the restaurant business, um, even though I couldn't barely afford it, I, I got every periodical, every magazine. Um, you know, I, I joke around with the editors now of Nation's Restaurant News. Um, you know that like I could barely afford their 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 mm-hmm. subscription, uh, but I got it. You know, I, I've I've been a, a proud uh, receiver of Nation's Restaurant News since '95, right? Um, and I really dived in, and I didn't dive in just reading it on the surface. I really dived in looking for movements, looking for trends, trying to understand um, uh, different categories. And, um, and that's what really led me to actually leaving Sharky's after, you know, by the way, I stayed for, you know, over three years after okay. college, two years in college. So five years I was with Baja Sharky's. What was your role at Baja Sharky's? Uh, I started as a bouncer. Uh, I moved. I was, I was, Rapidly promoted uh, to being a bus boy, um, responsible. Cool. Yeah, yeah. A lot of throw up in that place. I'm not nice. gonna lie. Uh, yeah, you learn. You learn very quickly uh, that uh, no job too small. Um, and by the way, I was the lowest on the totem pole, so yeah. <laughs> every every bad job was mine. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I ended up uh, uh, finally making it to bartender, and from there, um, uh, Greg Newman, and, and for that matter, Ron. Um, had a lot of trust in me. And when I decided not to, um, or when I graduated uh, college, they actually made me general manager at an unbelievably young age. I mean, I was right. 21 years old. And this as is the GM. Hermosa Beach location? This is the Manhattan Beach. Manhattan but, at that, but at that time, it was actually called El Porto. Okay. Because no one in Manhattan Beach would allow North Manhattan to be called North Manhattan. So it was El Porto. That's the original. I was GM of that at probably 21 years old. And um, a lot of that was because Greg knew, um, knew one, my honesty, um, and there's a lot of cash going through that place. Um, and then he also knew that, um, that uh, I definitely, and, you know, I joke around with this, but, you know, I've, I've been, you know, an old soul. You know, I, I laugh that now I'm 45 going on 60, right? So at the time, I was probably 21 going on 35. So, um, and, and he knew that um, I definitely had the patience and the people skills to deal with all the personalities because really by the time you're a general manager, um, you're in the people business. Um, and I, you know, I had a lot of leadership roles throughout, you know, my, my early years. So, um, so he gave me this great position and really with very little roadmap and I kind of had to figure it out, but over the course of a year or two, I really did figure it out and they were, uh, expanding. So, um, I was fortunate enough to allow them to, uh, 
give me the opportunity um, to write the training materials um, to really codify what made us special as we expanded to new locations. And that's when really my my uh, my nerdy side, my growth came in because I, while I think a lot of people would have um, just taken other training manuals, um, I really was um, excited to take some of the progressive leadership training that I'd had in my youth and really apply it to this new business. And I think it gave it a new perspective in a lot of ways. And some of those things are, are massive innovations that you see today in Mendo uh, was early days in Sharkies writing those manuals at 22, 23. Um, so by the time I was 24, I noticed that there was a new category that was emerging. It was just called better. Um, and <laughs> and it was just slightly better than fast food. So it was better quality ingredients. It was the quality ingredients that you'd find from casual dining. Um, presenting in a fast food format. So essentially fast casual? Which is now called fast casual. Right. That's right. So at the time they were calling it better Mexican was, you know, <laughs> was, was Baja Fresh. And right. So I was spending a lot of time driving out to actually the valley mm-hmm. where we're here today, um, going to see the early Baja Freshes and really mm-hmm. appreciating what they were doing for the Mexican segment, but in general that this could be um, laid over on a lot of categories. Um, and that's when I started writing kind of the business plan for a better teriyaki concept that uh, that was first called American Benno Company, and we later rebranded it after completely failing, called it Skews. Um, so this is your uh, that you left Baja Sharkies. So I left Baja Sharkies to go uh, to go create this better teriyaki concept. And was it just you, or did you have a? Partner? I had two um, awesome genius partners still to this day those they're they're unbelievably successful human beings and the mere fact that i couldn't work with them as a partner is probably more my failure than theirs um one of which uh ended up when he left in pure anger um yelled back i i asked him like where are you going right as he stormed off after like a meeting like Mm -hmm. you know he said i quit i'm out of here he's storming off i'm like what are you gonna go do right because we'd all left um our, you know, our jobs to right. do this. We were all in together. And he goes, I'm going to go be a lawyer. Um, and I got what a weird thing to say. And, uh, and, and now still to this day, he's my restaurant lawyer and oh, he's the, wow. um, he's the most successful restaurant lawyer in the country. He wow. runs the largest restaurant law practice. I think he has over 80 lawyers in That's his amazing. group and has created an entire category. We're best of friends and we're on the phone every single day. So it's it's great that it came full circle. And the so, other, I th- so I think the lesson is if you get angry after a meeting, go yeah. to law school. There you go. And come out on law yeah. school. Yeah. And, and then circle exactly. back to your business partner. Right. I hope exactly. he's still around. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it's pretty cool. And then the other guy's like unbelievably successful in real estate. So so I started with with three partners. I think we had a decent business plan. And we're, sorry, were they the, your friends like in college? Like how did you meet? Fraternity brothers in college, um, all trying to kind of figure it out. Um, and yeah, we all got together and thought that this category was great and that we should invest our time and effort. And there was just a lot of things that we still hadn't learned yet. you know. And uh, I go back to, I give advice all the time to young up-and-coming restaurant uh, guys. Um, you know, hey, look, uh, first of all, fully commit, um, be a student of the business. But the second thing is spend as much possible time. It doesn't matter what they pay you, but working for the best, right? And had I, I had, I had gone through working for the Newmans, which was incredible. I probably needed one more job, right? right? I needed one more great group, um, to go work for, to have that different perspective. There was a lot of things that Sharkies, um, Baja Sharkies, 
uh, cured because of their massive alcohol sales. Mm -hmm. So, and there was more I needed to know on food costing and and packaging and some of these other nuanced items. And, um, it was a tough learning curve. I joke around and say that I got my MBA from the school of hard knocks because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you truly, uh, are able to appreciate some success. Um, but you can't until you've actually like kind of hit rock bottom. And when both your business partners quit and there's no more money in the bank account, and you can't make payroll, and you have to go take out credit cards and get cash advances on credit cards right. to go pay for your team. Um, you, you, you know, you know where bottom is. Yep, yep, definitely, <laughs> I definitely. totally, I totally know what that feels like when yeah. you have to move out of your apartment and crash on someone's couch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, been there. You know the sexiness of uh, being a restaurant owner. So, so, so you're in that position. Like, yeah. how do you get out of it? Like, what do, what do you do at that moment? You know, I, you know, I, I joke around all the time because I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to that kind of 90, 120-day period of which I was teetering on bankruptcy, um, had to just keep figuring out how to not spend money. Um, and and at the same time, um, the one thing that that – or maybe two things that were kind of big was I, I, I very quickly stopped feeling sorry for myself, right? And went into how are we going to, you know, what's the big idea here? Right. How are we going to pivot this? How are we going to, you know, evolve this, right? And then the second thing is then having kind of the balls uh, to go work the plan, right? So I ended up, uh, I took a loan out from my sister, um, you know, my younger sister, right, of like, I think she loaned me 10 grand um, so I could change the name. I remember going across the street, there was a really high-end gym in Manhattan Beach. It was actually technically El Segundo across the street mm-hmm. in Rosecrans and getting this um, nutritionist to do a whole nutritional breakdown of my menu. And it actually helped me change some of the dishes so they'd be hyper healthy. And in doing that, she said, I'll, "This is still excuse. This is still skews." She recommended all of her clients to, to have to, to have to eat at my restaurant. This this is if you stop telling me excuses, just go eat. You know your meals at skews. Right. If you if you like are stuck and you can't do the diet that I've 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 set out for you. So uh, so I had the built-in guest. I totally pivoted to being healthy. It stopped being better teriyaki. It was better for you. And yes, it had kind of this spin around that. So all the sauces were pulled off. You put them on yourself, mm-hmm. right? Um, and um, and then a name that kind of more people understood what the hell it was. Literally, I opened and saw a 20 25% increase. And wow. that just kept building. Wow. And it was a total pivot. I go back to it all the time yeah. because there's been plenty of other dark moments, mm-hmm. you know, in my professional career. And I think once you've kind of fully dusted yourself off after getting bucked really hard, um, you know you always are going to get back on. Right. You know what I mean? And um, and it's been it's been a it was probably my darkest moment. And it's the one I go back to most uh, for kind of inspiration, right? Right. So, Mario, you know what I'm curious about is you know there's these two catchphrases: "Fake it till you make it," and you know you'll just figure it out. Uh-huh. You know, but. It's easy to kind of look back and say, you know, I did figure it out, you know, or yeah. I did kind of get through it. But, you know, how do you deal with that sort of uncertainty? You know, when you're working for yourself, and I think this is, a, you know, this would be great yeah. advice for, you know, young entrepreneurs or just young visionaries. You know, when you're going in and doing something yourself, like, you know, there's no salary, there's mm-hmm. no insurance. I mean, you're really kind of dependent on yeah. yourself, literally. 
Uh, but how do you deal with the, you know, whether it's the anxiety or the, you know, just the overall uncertainty of, you know, the future? I'll give you the, the three things that I think you're asking me is is first, um, and yes, I have used the word fake until you make it. Oh, all the time. Um, but but what I think that lacks, because I've used it, um, is is really... Okay, you're you're in, you have a you have a predicament, you have a challenge, right? Or you know, some people spin it and go, "These are your opportunities." Right? They're challenges, right? Um, wh- how do, how do you go about addressing it? How, how do I how do I how do I address that, right? And then the other side is all of the psychological side of like, how do how do I manage self doubt and how do I manage you know what I mean mentally how, my attitude and how I think about the business, mm-hmm. right? And then, then I think the third side, right, is is who do I bring along, right? Who do I who do, who do I have to? How do I reinforce myself, right, and and, and actually uh, help complement myself, right? So I so I potentially don't face the same challenges, right? So I think with the challenges, you know, I mean, particularly with the restaurant business, maybe far more, but it's one I know, um, you know, always for me, mentorship has been probably one of the 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 biggest ways of helping um, compartmentalize and sort out, right? You're overwhelmed by it. If you start breaking it down, you start compartmentalizing it, and you start actually talking to people that have potentially been there or at least have something to relate that's going to give you the context of making a far better decision, right? Because you can learn from their mistakes or their their successes. Right. Um, so I, I've always leaned on mentorship. Very early, I was cold calling people that probably had no business talking to me, but they took the time to talk to me because I think they did the same thing. Right. So, um, yeah, I think they understood the, the, you know, the benefits of having that board of advisors, even if it's an informal board of advisors, you know, hundred percent. I think you nailed it. Um, you know, the second thing that the, the psychological and the attitude and the self doubt, you know, that's a little bit of the, um, intrinsic, you know, side of like what 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 makes a great entrepreneur, you know, and you start to go like, well, you know, the, you know the, that word grit, you know, comes to mind. And there's a certain way that like your balls are bigger, <laughs> you know what I mean, and that that you have to have a certain level of confidence, not cockiness. You know, I think there's a massive um, amount of benefit from humility and reflection and being your own worst critic, right? I see, I see people that are arrogant and cocky. That's not big balls. You know what I mean? Um, that's not someone that's going to be a successful entrepreneur. But when I see grit um, and I see someone that, um, that is reflective and is their own worst critic, that's someone that's actually going to continue to evolve and grow. Um, so I, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to say like, oh, get a, you know, you, you're starting out an entrepreneur, get a, get a life coach, yeah, right. for sure. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's plenty of being that student of the business. There's plenty of of uh, books that you should be enriching yourselves with that that's going to help you, um, you know, be out of your head and be clearer um, and be more present. Uh, but I also think that there's a lot of life experience that allows on some entrepreneurs to be better entrepreneurs and to have that grit. You know, uh, the, you know, Chris Rock. I, I went and saw, you know, him just a couple weeks ago. He's Did not hilarious. think that we we're going to get a Chris Rock. Oh, we have to get Chris here, Rock. Yeah. Chris Rock was so great. Uh, he was talking about taking his uh, his his uh, daughters to their private school, and uh, and the 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 headmaster speaks like this is a bully free environment. You know, I want you to know that you're getting that for this uh, amount of money that you're paying. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I want bullies. I love bullies. Like 
like you, you, you don't think Bill Gates wasn't bullied? <laughs> like, yeah. like, what do you think kept him in the, you know, in the computer lab? <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you think Chris Rock wasn't bullied? What do you think made me so funny? Like you, you start building right, this right. this skill set to to cope, right? right. So, but but what he's really getting at in this bigger thing is kind of what Duckworth you know talks about in the book Grit, right? It's like this experience. We want to make sure we're giving our, our kids these experiences that give them grit. And even though I grew up, you know, I grew up you know, in a town where my family owned a giant meat company. I'll tell you what, my dad never let me think that, right? You know, I had to go, all I knew is I had to go work in the meat plant when everyone else was maybe going off doing fun stuff, so. So you're, you're at SKUs, you know, you're building SKUs um, yeah. and you sort of transform the business and yeah. all of a sudden you get a big, you know, spurt in growth and mm-hmm. it's going well. Tell us about the transition to Mendocino Farms. Like, how, yeah. why did you I opened a second skis, did really well on the second one. Opened a third, completely misbudgeted, was running massively short on dough during construction um, and had to find an investor and found uh, the lady that I was dating at the time had made an enormous amount of money um, during the 90s dot-com boom and ended up um, investing in my company. And I finally convinced my business partner to marry me. Uh, but, uh, but, but Ellen actually um, came in and really started giving me um, uh, metrics and, and, and really gave the business kind of the, the, uh, the business side of, of, of analysis. And really, I had to prove ROI in everything we did. Um, and she helped us through and ended up selling um, the SKUs concept. And at that point, we kind of settled back and said, hey, look, what is everything that we've learned? What were our, what were our successes? What are our wins? Because I think you oftentimes can – everyone says you, you learn from your losses. Right. I think you actually, like, learn more from your wins. So we're, what is everything that went right? And then, and then go ahead, let's do a little bit of an autopsy of, like, we were in way too small of a category. What's the biggest category? Sandwiches. What are some big movements that we see going on? We saw a huge movement 14 years ago towards people caring about where their ingredients came from. That really turned out to be a movement. Um, We saw that uh, one of the big wins with our teriyaki concept is that we started understanding that we weren't selling teriyaki, we were selling happy. So we really um, had a good cultural foundation of this idea of we sell happy. Um, And then we also uh, had already built a pretty good catering company. And we knew that uh, we were getting our wazoos kicked by sandwich concepts because we were doing hot catering. Mm -hmm. So you had to go back and pick it up or you had to have kind of like ghetto chafing stuff that got thrown away. And to be able to compete in a category that we already knew with a product that we knew we could make better, um, it was pretty easy. And then the last one was um, the advent of better coffee. Um, 14 years ago, Starbucks was tiny. There were probably like 700 Starbucks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but everyone was calling them a third place. And we said, wow, you know, if they're calling a coffee shop a gathering place as small as they are, synergistically, if we go right beside them, we could actually be the modern day cafe. We could be these modern day gathering places. Let's not do coffee. Let's just always put a Mendo right beside coffee. Right. And now we're a cafe. Um, and we saw that as a powerful um business plan and that's why you see most mendos we have a we have a coffee shop right by us yeah right it's part of the the marketing you know plan and and and, and by intent like we'll go and recruit a coffee shop to be right beside right. us um so yeah so those are the things we were going on and and we had written that up and we were able to finance it ourselves because of the sale of SKUs and went and did the first one 
And Where was the first location? First one was downtown LA, just underneath the Museum of Contemporary Art in a failed Starbucks. Of, mm. Yeah, right? Um, so we actually opened a little tiny coffee shop right beside it. You opened one, it yourself. We opened ourselves. Part of Mendocino Farms is a complete different We brand. renamed it. It was uh, Tao Tea and Coffee. Okay. Right? So we were trying to do like a tea coffee thing. If you added the Z in there, it would have been... You know, that Starbucks tea brand. I know. And I probably could have made a ton of dough, huh? Yeah. Selling it to yeah. them. That would have been way good. Yeah, yeah we failed. Yeah. We failed running the uh, coffee tea thing. Um, not surprised. So you had um, uh, done SKUs, sold it, you know, opened up this new concept. Started Mendo, line out the door, 70 deep. And, um, and then that's where the reflection, I think a lot of people were like, hey, how do you not scale the hell out of this? Do you think that was because of your success with SKUs? Or what do you think that was just the concept made sense? It was in the right place? Every right. time sandwiches are in everyone's rotation, yeah. and at that time we were competing against uh, the only thing on Bunker Hill was Subway, right. maybe a Quiznos, right. right? So we were doing something, and, and, and it's a bunch of high-end lawyers and accountants. Right. So it's, it's very our, corporate. It's our demographic. It's a bunch of uh, former SC and UCLA people that I went to school with mm-hmm. that don't even want to eat Subway and Quiznos. So we were giving them the number one product that they would prefer at the quality that they needed at a price point that was absolutely approachable. It, it, it checked all the boxes. Right. So out of the gate, we were doing giant, giant numbers. So how fast was your growth from, you know, location that, one to two to three? To, and I think that's just it. You know, I think you're going to hear all the time that um, in the restaurant business that there's a land grab. Never in the history of the restaurant space has there been a land grab. There just hasn't, right? So we, we pumped the brakes and actually really started analyzing whether – um, we were just busy because we were only competing against a Subway and a Quiznos, mm-hmm. or did did we actually um, have something special, and how could we make it more special? And then likewise, what are the systems that we needed to put in place to be able to scale this? So we spent four more years um, writing not only just training materials, we invested in a central kitchen. We were doing all of it on site. We invested in, in real infrastructure um, real processes, and then real people. Like we, we brought in a, uh, a trainer. We brought in a chef partner, um, brought in some real um, backbone to the business. And then year four, we opened both store two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, store two was a block away, uh, killed it, did better than store one. And then we opened store three in Marie Del Rey and got our wazoos kicked and not in a People didn't show up. It was it was so insanely busy that um, that we had to go back and study it because we were actually our guest was pretty unhappy in suburbia. Mm-hmm. We were doing a very urban concept and presenting it very urban in sub, in suburbia, and we weren't being as thoughtful to that suburban guest. And we we actually made massive adjustments in store four. So we took a whole year off, studied store three, and then adjusted that and opened West Hollywood and Third and Fairfax back to back. Which, which were more suburban. We changed uh, to from a pay last to a pay first kind of model. Mm-hmm. We still kept our bifurcated ordering system, which is kind of unique to us. Um, and then we ended up uh, changing the dining room size by store, uh, by store five and actually really making it bigger so you could take a stroller through. And 
Um, moms didn't feel, you know, we had kids' corners so kids could play and get up and really started evolving the concept. And then since then, we've opened uh, anywhere from two to three restaurants per year mm-hmm. um, until actually this year. This is the first year that we're opening seven. Wow. So kind of going back to that first concept, I mean, there's a few years when until you opened location two, yep. um, and you had, you know, right out the gate, you had a massive success mm-hmm. line out the door, like you said. What advice would you give to um, founders of, like, just food concepts, restaurants, bars that get that initial, you know, out the gate traction. Yeah. Like for example, Howland Rays, I'm sure you've heard of them, yeah. you know, line out the door every single day, yeah. hours totally. and hours of wait. Um, and they're already expanding really quickly. So it's like, yeah. um, you know, why did you take three years? What was that process like for you? Why didn't you, you could have opened a second location that year if you wanted yeah. to, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I, I'd recommend you ask yourself three questions, right? First question you want to ask yourself is, 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 am I so busy because geographically my competition blows, right? Like, I, I'm the tallest midget, right? Is that, like, because you really want to, you want to gauge yourself, you know, you know on, 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 is it that good? If I went into another area that was hyper more competitive, would, um, would in fact, I, I be as craveable, okay? Um, the second thing that I, I, I think you have to look at is, do I have the infrastructure? Is, is it a cult of personality? Is it a great chef that knows the recipes or it's a few great people that are able to execute on the promise? Or have I gotten this so simplified, right, the genius in making it simple, that this can be replicated consistently at the same volumes without these badasses at the helm, mm-hmm. right? And that's the second question you want to ask yourself, right? And then the third, and I know for us, and I don't know for how many ways and everything else, right, is what are then, right, in scaling, right, what is the support that's needed slash infrastructure that's needed, right? So um, do you have to have a bigger centralized kitchen? Um, can your third-party vendors actually extend? You know, can, do you need a, a support team in, 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 in uh, district managers? Um, what, who do you need in your support center? Do you need a support center? What are all the pieces that you now have to put in place? Because when you have one, man, we were out on a picnic table out in front of the restaurant with a laptop and a backpack. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? By three, you start to actually need a place to land. You know what I mean? You need a graphic designer. You need, you need some of these things you can't you can't know, do it yourself. You can't do yourself. You need, you know, someone actually, uh, you know, being a culinary trainer. You need, an, you know, so you need to start. What are those things? And I think what that third question you have to ask yourself is, what are those pieces? And then, and then in that third question, how much is that? Because that eats, you know, we look at the profit of like the one store, but we don't look at as your GNA and like mm-hmm. what is it going to take to support that to do it right. Um, so I, I would ask myself those three questions. We did, and we needed a central kitchen. Um, so we spent all the money that we would have spent on building a second store to building a badass kitchen that made our food taste better. And the minute that we went into a hyper competitive area of Marie Del Rey, our food was better, right? And then we even went back at store seven and completely revamped our catering because we actually saw catering in other cities like New York looked better than ours. And even though we weren't competing in New York, we took that, those looks and brought it back to the LA market where even, you know, we were probably already a dominant caterer player. We became even more dominant because we kept pulling these great ideas, kept evolving, kept investing, right? So Mario, you, I think one theme that I get from everything you've said so far, and specifically those three points that you just made, was that as 
a founder, you need to be honest with yourself, mm-hmm. you know, because all the things that you're talking about, the numbers, you know, mm-hmm. the, the way that the people, the customers were re- reacting to it. It's very easy to believe you start believing yourself and thinking like, you know, I have the best sandwich. People are going to come. Yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah. you're like, you know, I could be wrong if the people aren't actually coming, you know. How difficult is it for you to be honest with yourself, you know, with your business specifically? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I actually think it's it's really easy, but it's it's also it goes back to that that you know, you know that that intrinsic quality that I said that I think makes a good entrepreneur. I think you know that you see a little bit of. And by the way, I'm not trying to compare myself to like a Steve Jobs or I mean, you know, hey. no 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 <laughs> no. But but I would bring up and I'd reference right. like you know there's something. You know, entrepreneurs are typically wired a little bit differently, right? Like I, I'm, I am, I, I am filled with so much self doubt, right? That I constantly look at our food and and look at how we can tweak it and make it better, right? Um, you know, we we do as much um, innovation is renovation. You know, we we go back to our pre existing items and guests don't even notice, and we spend almost sixty percent of our time tweaking. The stuff that we that, that's on the menu, mm-hmm. than than even the innovative mm-hmm. stuff that you really you see and think it's a hundred percent of the time. Um, so for for me, I, I'm constantly going to you know fine dining restaurants or into other towns and seeing stuff, and I'm just nuggets of genius, just drawing inspiration just everywhere, going like God, could we do that? You know, we're about ready to present for um, on January fifteenth. This we call it the pastrami project. Um, but it's been this massive. I mean, I've spent probably in just hard money, maybe half a million dollars on um, our smokehouse, um, our consultants, the whole thing. Because because I was inspired six years ago. I went into this little hole in the wall in Brooklyn, New York. This this place called Miles End, and the chef was doing the best pastrami I'd ever tasted in my life. I'm like, why is this so much better than, than, you know, than what I'm familiar with? Mm-hmm, he goes, mm-hmm. I'm actually old school house smoking it. I'm treating it like brisket. You're, wow. you're tasting real bark. You know, the other product, you know, I, I hate to break your heart. It's manufactured. Right. And that's just, it's smoke flavored. It's not real bark. I'm like, God, this is, this is, this is big. This is important. Mm-hmm. This is important for the genre that I'm in. Right. Right. How, how can we not take a, uh, a supportive role, you know, right. and streamline off of what um, um, the chef has done, and and it was this. It's been this massive journey that mm-hmm. now is coming to fruition. But I think you have to a little bit have right see genius in everyone else. And and to your point of like, hey, yeah, we're already, you know, selling more sandwiches than maybe anyone in L.A. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, oh my God, don't think like that ever. Right. right? We constantly go like 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 how how are we going to uh, be better? How are we going to innovate? Where where are we getting inspiration? Where and we're not moving with the wind, but we're we're thoughtfully challenging ourselves constantly. I mean, if I could tell you the investment of things that you guys haven't even seen as guests because it just never made it. You of know, course. we were we were gonna make our own from scratch sausages. You know what I mean? Like I would have minded that. Of, like it was, I would not mind having that. It was like, hey, we're we're still we're still tinkering, <laughs> you know. Um, all the way to we just did a, um, I, you know, I was in Houston on a food tour, went to this uh, killer place, local foods. Guy does an exceptional job, and the architecture is just amazing too. But uh, and I was eating this thing that I felt like was pretty rudimentary. That's why I ordered it. But they were like, ah, it's most popular. It's a taco salad. And um, I'm like, I, you know, I've, I've crushed myself a taco salad here and there, you know. Um, 
And the guy did it kind of with more of a fine dining approach. And it really kind of inspired. And, and we went back and we're like, hey, you know, what's a modern version of this? I really felt like it was a fine dining guy's version of kind of mom's taco salad, which was okay. But we really kind of asked ourselves, is there an elevated version that would be very much mendofying it, mm-hmm. right? And at the time, we had the guys from Impossible Burger, which, which is actually kind of against what we believe for vegan cooking. We right. think that our vegan guest wants to taste vegetables and doesn't want to taste faux meat. But we also understand that we have a clientele that's really becoming flexitarians, really herbivores. That are really starting to move the the vegetables. Our our data is showing that we're moving vegetables to the center of the plate and the protein to the side. So you're like plant forward, right? So so yeah, so very much plant based. So we're like, God, there's something there. And they were talking about that their extra trim for making their burgers. Do we have a use for them? We're like, my God, we do. What if we made like our own chorizo from this plant based burger? Right. Right. And then put it over this kind of modern day taco salad that was completely vegan, but we do a vegan ranch. And in fact, the cotilla cheese is actually nutritional yeast. That felt like a modern, you know, innovative vegan taco salad that's right. that's just as indulgent and rich, but it's heart healthy and is actually fairly low calorie, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But has like kind of a fattiness that kind of dissipates super fast. Right. Right. So anyways, it just fell in line, but that's it's a great ex- example of like like we're we're pulling nuggets constantly iterating constantly. Yeah. Something you mentioned um, earlier on, and, and something we sort of want to end with here, I guess, is uh, you mentioned like with SKUs, and I'm sure with Mendocino Farms, uh, you're you're selling happy, right? Yeah. How do you sell happy? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so so we're gonna go ahead and continue this uh, for the next 45 uh, minute uh, podcast, yeah. part two, uh, part two. Uh, yeah, you know, so, um, you know, in, in defining like, like, you know, what, what is, you know, why, why do we sell happy versus how do we sell happy? And I think there's two, you know, you know so why do we sell happy is the fact, you know, that you go to, um, I think one of the things that's helped Mendo um, with, with whatever success we've had to this point is that we started with our why. We knew what our what was, sandwiches and salads, but we actually started with a why. Um, and one of those whys, like one was support local um, farmers and artisans that deserve it. Second was to be a neighborhood gathering place. The third was we sell happy. That was our why. It's, uh, it was on day one, and we actually live it even stronger 12 and a half years later. Um, the why we sell happy was that we were noticing at SKUs that people were coming down, stressed out lawyers, zero sum, right? It comes full circle. Stressed out, pissed off lawyers. Yep. And um, and we had uh, some SC uh, team members that were so unbelievably smart, right. right, at register that that these, I remember these two girls had remembered almost everyone's name. They'd created these lists and what they usually order because it was a lot of regulars. So, so they were greeting by name and knew like like they were in this conversation. And then they had a tip. They had asked, hey, can we put out a tip jar? I'm like, absolutely. And they were crushing it in tips. Because it's like a small neighborhood at this point, right? Absolutely. So they're, they're, they're like, they're, they were like kind of the norm at Cheers, right? But the, the, you'd see these lawyers that, were, that, that would come stressed out were almost looking forward to this like quick interaction of their order because our team members had made them feel right so welcomed it was like mm-hmm. kind of a it was an escape for them 
to come down and order from us, yeah. right? And did you have yeah. the person sort of at the front, like back in the day too, when uh, you know when you walk in, like they're just kind of there helping you out? No, them? no, oh. that was a that was an evolution, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. So we saw that. By the way, we didn't create it. We saw this, and Ellen and I are going, God, like, what if we actually put some real like practice behind it? This is something special. And by the way, this is this like. This idea of human connection, right? Of 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 at that time we thought technology, you know, was crazy, right? This is now 16 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Technology has gone so out of control. We had right. no idea people would be staring at, you know, their their phones nonstop um, at that time. But we're like, people need to feel loved. People need to feel cared for. You know, um, there's there's great stories, you know, you know, um, of uh, Howard Schultz, you know, talking about, um, you know, a guy coming up to him. Um, and you know he's a tall guy, and this guy's like super bigger than Howard Schultz, thicker than Howard Schultz. He's in a suit, um, but he comes walking up to Howard Schultz, and Howard Schultz is a little intimidated because he actually notices the guy, even though he's in a suit, has a gun, and then quickly sees that he has a badge, so he's okay. The guy goes up, "You own this place," and he's like, "Ah, technically I don't own this place, but I'm I'm co I'm founder, I'm CEO." Yeah. And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, you own this place," and he goes, "I just want you to know I don't come here for uh, caffeine." He's like, "Okay." And he starts listing all the team members' names. I come here for so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so. And he goes, oh, that's great. You know, I'll pass it on to management. He goes, no, 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 you're not hearing me. He goes, I don't even get caffeine when I come here. I actually can't have it. I, I, I get decaffeinated. He goes, okay, great. And he goes, no, you're not hearing me. He goes, I come here every day at 3 o'clock because I have to because so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And he's naming some people that aren't even in the building. He goes, actually reconnect me to humanity and sh- show me that there's a place that people care for one another and that, that humanity is good. And in fact, it, it recharges me because and, and my job is a homicide detective. And, and by about noon, I actually have lost all my faith. And, and at 3 o'clock, I get recharged by, by these people. And I want you to know that these people know that they're doing more than just selling coffee. It's an amazing story. Right? And and you know that that resonates with you. You know you know you know John Mackey. You know told you know told me a story first time he was mentoring me. Sorry, we're running over our time. Those of you you're on the commute, you're probably in the driveway right now. <laughs> um, but John Mackey gave me a great story, and it really really connected me. We we had Mendo for a while, but he goes, you know, when I was creating Whole Foods Market, um, I actually uh, at the time. Um, uh, what resonated with me was this idea of being, uh, and he heard it from his buddy that owned or created the container store, mm-hmm. right? So the founder of the container store had shared the story <laughs> with John. John had like made it his. So and now Mario's sharing it with you. And now I'm like <laughs> now sharing it with you guys. But um, but he goes, yeah. He always said like you know this idea like I, that I love is that that when I created Whole Foods, I was like a I was an oasis owner. Like I bought an oasis, you mm-hmm. know, in the middle of a desert. So of course everyone knows, you know, the one product I sell, right? So. You know, my one guest is the person that's lost in a desert that comes, you know, crawling up to me to ask me for my one product, right? Water. You know, I want water. And damn it, I better be pretty good at delivering them water, right? I better be good at Whole Foods at giving them groceries, to come for groceries, right? But after I give them that water, can I do so much more, right? Can I give them shelter? Couldn't I give them maybe a phone to call people that they needed? Couldn't I give them ongoing workshops on how not to get lost in the desert, right? Couldn't I offer other things that are actually going to enrich their lives? And he goes, I'll tell you what, you know, Whole Foods, you know, on, on its surface better be good at being a grocery store. But I, I don't jump out of bed. I jump out of bed to enrich the people's lives, right? Make, be part of facilitating a healthier life for them, 
right? And we have that opportunity once we deliver, you know, the table stakes of, of that water. And we start thinking of like the, the ability for us. And, and when I look at Mendo now, you know, our team, you know, that, that, that you see are not fast food workers. These are unbelievably intelligent, bright people that we've shared with them how to do very ordinary work at an extraordinary level. Um, you know, we teach them about the Fred factor. We teach them that like, you look like you're a busser, but let me tell you how you can influence, you know what I mean, in a positive way and elevate that job of busing to being one that has a human uh, humanity to it, a human connection to it, right? Um, you might be at register, but let me tell you, you know what I mean, how you can elevate that position. And this is this is the promise that we give to every one of our team members who comes work here. So while it's really important for our guests that we sell that, it's unbelievably um, important for our team to know that they're working for a company that's purpose-driven, totally. right? Um, and that massively uh, helps our culture thrive. And for that matter, hopefully help our co- culture scale. Mm-hmm. Well, Mario, it's been a great conversation. You know, uh, thanks so much for your time. Your energy and passion for this stuff is is definitely, you know, contagious. And you feel it when you walk into to Mendocino. So you've done a great job and um, can't wait to, you know, see it grow and, and see what happens in the next, you know, five to ten years. Guys, thank you. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Mario. Take Have care.